Welcome or welcome back to Victorian Samplings. I'm Vanessa Warren, and today we're exploring some of the resourceful and creative things Victorians did with paper. We begin with Jesse Cron's conversation with Deborah Wynn about paper recycling, textile history, and a precious handmade book. We'll speak with Hannah Field, whose work on wallpapers hung in children's rooms engages topics as varied as literary memoir and home hygiene. We hear from Alice Crosley about Victorian-era valentines, which, as we'll learn, paired paper with a surprising mix of materials to communicate some equally surprising messages. And, making a welcome addition to this episode's consideration of paper, Anne Hung brings us her conversation with Paisley Mann about newspaper kiosks in 19th century Paris. Stay with us to get the scoop. I'm Jesse Cron. I'm speaking today with Professor Deborah Wynn, who studies 19th century literature in the Department of English at the University of Chester. Deborah's currently researching Charlotte Bronte and her representations of textiles, as well as the impact of textiles on Bronte's life. We'll be discussing a small, obscure book by Charlotte Bronte that has connections to the textile industry. Many listeners might actually be surprised to learn about the text's existence, so Deborah, could you introduce this novelty for us? Yes. Um... Charlotte Bronte, along with her brother Branwell, wrote lots and lots of little stories and kept a magazine, which they um, wrote issue after issue. And all of them were written in absolutely tiny, minute script on paper the size of a large postage stamp, which all of those pieces of paper would be sewn together and they would write fantastic stories about their imaginary kingdom of Angria. These stories are quite difficult to actually read without a magnifying glass, but the small children uh, were able to sort of find a way of packing a great deal of text into these very, very small spaces. And one of the things that interests me about these little books is not only the fact that it was the apprenticeship of Charlotte Bronte as a writer, that she she learnt to write regularly and frequently and in great length through these little tiny texts, but also that she she used paper. And you might think, well, of course, <laughs> people would write on paper. But at that time, paper was incredibly expensive, which is one reason why children would have written on little blackboards and uh, with chalk, something which could be rubbed off and write, written on again. So she would save salvage every scrap of paper that came into the Bronte's home, which was the parsonage in uh, Haworth, Yorkshire, and saving, hoarding those little pieces of paper and then sewing them together to create these books was one way of recycling. But paper recycling um, was a very important aspect of Victorian culture too. And so you've moved us towards the issue of production and the availability of paper in Bronte's time. What then are some important things for listeners to note about the way paper was produced? Well, it was produced very differently um, before the 1870s than it, it is today. We're used to paper being produced from wood pulp. So one of the reasons we recycle paper is because we are trying to save the world's forests. But paper before that date, before the 1870s, was manufactured from textile waste. Textile waste was something which had to be collected. Scraps of fabric had to be collected and converted into paper in paper mills. And you might think, oh, well, there would be loads of bits of fabric all over the place. But the Victorians were a very thrifty sorts of people. They never really wasted things. As one commentator said, the shirt, a duke's shirt, could end up as a housekeeper's duster because it would sort of travel through various levels of society where the shirt would be worn by five or six owners before it got too tatty, when it might then be ripped up into, into dusters. So people would be waiting for the moment when the fabric became too ragged 
and then it would be thrown away. And a whole team of workers would then engage with it in the sense of collecting from the streets pieces of fabric, rags, which then could actually be taken to rag dealers. If we remember in Dickens's novel, Bleak House, he has a rather eccentric character called Crook, who owns a rag and bottle shop. And inside of his shop are these huge piles of rags waiting to be taken to uh, the paper mills in the countryside. And there, the rags would be converted into paper. And Dickens, uh, along with a collaborator, wrote an interesting article about this called A Paper Mill, where he went on a visit to a paper mill. And he was absolutely astounded that filthy rags, which were crawling with lice and other vermin, would be transformed into beautiful white paper. He saw this as a sort of magical transformation. And there was actually a shortage in the 1850s of rags, simply because they did become quite an expensive commodity because people from abroad were buying up British rags. They were seen as quite cheap, whereas actually there was a tax on British rags for British manufacturers. And that meant that paper became incredibly expensive which is perhaps one of the reasons why the Bronte children didn't just say to their father, please buy me paper. They just took every little bit that they could find because it was an expensive commodity. Was it common for children to be involved in the process of production outside of the Bronte's home? Yes, it was certainly common for children to work on the streets as collectors, and they could collect all sorts of detritus, even dog excrement was useful for the tanning industry. But rags were quite a good commodity for small children to collect because they were sort of lightweight and they could pick up as many as they could and get a few pennies for them. So many orphans and children wearing rags would be on the city streets collecting rags. And that was one way in which they could make a hand-to-mouth living. Obviously, nobody got paid a great deal for that sort of work, but they certainly would probably have had a few pence in order to eat that day. And it, it is interesting that the childhood of the Brontes and their sort of middle-class rural parsonage home were writing on paper, which could very well have been based upon the rags collected by small children in the city streets who were orphaned and completely underprivileged. Do you have thoughts about the way that some children would be involved in that process of production, but would also be barred from using the paper that their labor was producing? Yeah, and of course those children would be illiterate, so there's a considerable irony that small children who were destitute orphans, abandoned children, would be on the streets of London collecting bits of rag, which would then be converted into something they could never access because they couldn't read or they had no money to buy books or newspapers. And it's very significant, I think, that the schools that were set up in the 1840s were called ragged schools because those children would be given an opportunity to have a very basic education for free. Dickens actually went to visit one of those ragged schools in the 1840s and found the children were sitting there in rags and the, the schools were very well named. And of course, they probably collected rags and other things in order to make a living too. Of course, many of them might have been involved in, in crime as well. But I think that for those children, it was very much a hand-to-mouth life of just surviving. I'm interested in the way that these textiles and paper could be expensive, but could still comprise material that's been touched, processed, and used by many different people from different classes across lifetimes even. I'm thinking of your point that one commentator said a duke's shirt could end up as a housekeeper's duster. In a way, do these materials kind of unite groups across history? Does this speak to the way that class demarcations were upheld, or does it show that some boundaries could be blurred? Yes, that's a very interesting point, because one of the reasons why paper was in such short supply and why so many rags were needed was because 
the literacy rates of the country were increasing because of schools and ragged schools obviously were, were just at the bottom of that um, attempt to educate a, a broad sector of the population because of education people were able to read and they did want to read they wanted to read cheap uh, publications Dickens set the price of his own magazines household words and all the year round very low it was only a couple of pennies so that working class people could read them the publishing industry was burgeoning to such a degree that readers were there wanting to read the material which they hadn't been able to access before because of widespread illiteracy. So in one way, that sort of journey that rags took or textiles took from grand clothing or new clothing right down to rags, there was a sort of reverse trajectory when those rags then became cheaper and cheaper publications for more and more people to read. So I suppose Dickens was so fascinated by the rags to paper trajectory because it did unite people, because it was able to show a sort of progress in Victorian society. You mentioned that Dickens had viewed the process of papermaking as magical. The Bronte children's work was set in their fantastical kingdom. Could we explore that idea of fantasy or magic? What do you think about that? Mm, I think that the fantastic world of Angria is a very, very typical childish world where everything is um, dramatically large. So, for example, there are streets in Angria that are miles and miles long and buildings that are 30 miles high and giants who behave in an extremely violent manner towards small children. And the Brontes figured themselves as, as sort of giants themselves, the four genie, who are able to sort of control this world. It's very interesting to think that these leftover scraps of paper retrieved from, I don't know, the flour bags, the sugar bags that Tabby, the servant, was about to throw away in the kitchen, or, or she might have even wanted to reuse them herself, but the children would quickly sort of um, snap up every bit of paper, that from that, I suppose we might think of it as a form of impoverishment, not able to sort of like have your own resources, you have to sort of somehow steal them or or borrow them or collect them in any way you can. From that, um, the children were able to create powerful worlds in which they could write themselves as um, powerful controlling beings. And I think that's what makes it so interesting and perhaps links them to those impoverished children who collected the textiles to make the paper, that they too um, probably had those sort of ideas of transcendence and, and being powerful, as all children do, where they hope and create stories that one day they, they won't be in a position of powerlessness. I think the stories really help us to give to give us a flavour of Victorian childhood, but also there is that resonance of how the powerless can, through imagination and through storytelling, create a different world for themselves. So there is a world-making element, which is really exciting. And reading the Angrian tales is, is a most extraordinary experience because they are wild worlds. And Adults couldn't read them very easily because the text was so tiny. Um, they are quite amazing and well worth reading. I like that the Brontes had such big ideas and huge imaginary concepts packaged in such a small form. It's, it's kind of poetic. Yeah, it is. It is. I think there's something incredibly dramatic about just seeing these little tiny, tiny books and realising what is, is within them. And when Elizabeth Gaskell first saw these little books after Charlotte Bronte's death, when she was writing her biography uh, of Charlotte Bronte, her first impression was they were mad. You know, the children were absolutely <laughs> insane. These, these could never be published. It's just... <laughs> out of this world and I suppose that's what they were doing they were getting out of this world into another world that they had complete control over. 
Thanks so much for joining me today, Deborah. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Hannah Field is a senior lecturer in the School of English at the University of Sussex. She's the author of Playing with a Book, Victorian Movable Picture Books, and The Child Reader, published by the University of Minnesota Press. Thank you for joining me, Hannah. Thank you very much for having me. In Playing with the Book, you explore illustrated children's books that have moving parts, tabs and flaps and pop-up pages. Today, you're speaking with me about a set of illustrations that were also mobile, but in the sense that they made their way from the pages of children's books onto the walls of nurseries. Our topic is mass-produced wallpaper, and specifically a wallpaper that was marketed under the label Months, made by the David Walker Company. It features illustrations by British artist and author Kate Greenaway. Would you mind describing the wallpaper and Greenaway's illustrations for us? So the illustrations come from a series of books that Greenaway produced between 1883 and 1897 to almanacs for children. So the way that this has been converted into a wallpaper is the the little vignette illustrations for each month have been put together into a pattern that is, is sort of printed along with some decorative images it's a very, very pretty paper with lots of bows and flowers decorating between the images. And each of the images has a, as as the title The Months would suggest, has a focus on a particular part of the year and a particular activity that might happen at that time. So I'm looking at it now. April, there's a an older child carrying a baby running through an April shower with another toddler. In the, the picture for September, it looks to me like they're gathering slows and children are carrying baskets of apples in October or dancing round a hay bale, I think, in August. So there's this focus on seasonal activities that is carried over from the almanacs, which themselves were these seasonal publications. And it's also interesting, I think, to think about this paper in relation to other objects that came out from Greenaway. So Greenaway was an almost viral celebrity of children's culture in the Victorian period. And her illustrations weren't just the inspiration for wallpaper, but also China, costume, and various other kinds of interesting intersections with the, the rest of the kind of material culture of childhood. I should also say that the paper is held, the example that I'm looking at, it's held by the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, which was really, really forward thinking in collecting wallpaper, samples of wallpaper from its, pretty much from its sort of inception in the 19th century onwards. It has this amazing collection of Victorian wallpaper. Did you want to comment, Hannah, a little bit on what you think this wallpaper might tell us about the lives of Victorian children, or perhaps really about ideas of childhood in the Victorian period? I think that, first of all, it, your word mobility is a really good one here. So it's that it's that intersection between the spaces that children occupied, the toys that they played with, and also their books. And I think that the way that we usually think of this, perhaps more typically think of this now, is in terms of toys that tie in with books. So I, I'm a child of the 80s and, you know, there were lots and lots of television series that were basically created just to market toys, also like Gem or My Little Pony. But actually there's the, the precursors of all of these processes in the Victorian period where we have we have children's books being sold alongside toys. So Beatrix Potter, for example, um, patents at the end of the 19th century, a Peter Rabbit toy to go with her book. So we think of these practices as being really kind of hyper-consumerist 20th and 21st century ones when they actually do have this longer history. So that's the first thing it makes me think of. It also makes me think of the rise of separate spaces for children in middle-class homes. And so if we look at design manuals of this time, there's lots of instructions about how to furnish this relatively new room, which is a nursery, so that if you have the space, you want to have children in a separate room preferably at the top of the house where it's airy and uh, where there's not sort of the risk of 
of kind of of illness, I suppose, or kind of miasmas is how I understand it. And so it's going to be the children up there in these houses, usually with with nursemaids or nannies in this separate space. And this space will have different sorts of furniture, including different sorts of wallpaper. I should have said that the Greenaway paper is actually what's called a sanitary paper in that it's waterproof ink and it's washable. So that speaks to these concerns about hygiene and health. The, The last thing that I wanted to say, though, was that the wallpaper also speaks to this idea of perhaps the education of the eye and the fact that children's spaces and the the books they look at, the images they look at around them could all be part of their their kind of wider learning process and that they could learn from the walls of their nurseries as well as from their books and and their teachers and, and their family members. Hannah, I really appreciate how you're touching on architecture, the family, hygiene, health, education, taste, all of these issues are in play. But you come to this work as a scholar of literature, and I'm wondering if I could ask you to talk a little bit about literary references to the wallpaper or to nursery spaces. The thing with this, there's actually, I, I became a sort of collector of literary uh, references to wallpaper, which always really interested me. But I, I think that it links to what you were speaking about, what we were speaking about again and just then in terms of modes of education. And the very first scene in Dickens's Hard Times, we have this battle between fancy associated with the child and, and fact, um, the kind of Mr. Gradgrind model of education. We have it playing out with this lesson in design where children are asked, well, do you think wallpapers and carpets should have flowers, horses on them? And the children say, yeah, that would be great. We'd, we'd love to see that. Please, let's do that. And then the, I think it's a school inspector. He says, no, 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 no this is completely illogical. What are you talking about? We don't want to have this sort of, um, he says, we don't want to have quadrupeds on wallpapers. That just wouldn't do. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and it's actually a parody of a specific design reformer and children's author Henry Cole, who was uh, known as Felix Summerlee in his children's books, and who also had lots of involvement with the V&A. So there's lots of nice links there. But so there's this idea of the the fact that the wallpaper is going to teach children something, so that means it becomes a bit of a bit of a battleground. But the other example that I really like is actually Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, and that's the end of the 19th century. It's actually just looking it up before this, it's the year before the Greenaway paper, 1892. And the room that the unnamed narrator of the story is placed in, it was used as a nursery, it was used as a schoolroom, and the paper bears the traces of this usage. So it's sort of torn, and the pattern is, is really hideous. And it's part, it's part of the, I suppose I think the story's investigation of kind of the infantilization of women that, that the narrator is in this space with this inappropriate paper that is driving her mad so yeah I love that and I think many of our listeners will recognize the yellow wallpaper and if they don't uh, we'll we'll direct them to it as a great read Hannah could you talk a little bit about 20th century responses you know the people who might have inherited these spaces and then responded to them any thoughts on how you had us just now in the late 19th century can you move us forward a few decades to see how people were looking back at or just looking at these kinds of wallpapers I was really grateful to a colleague of mine who's a scholar of modernist literature because when I told her that I was thinking about, about Greenaway and Greenaway's papers, she said, oh, you know what, Mina Loy, the experimental uh, modernist kind of vanguard poet, had a Greenaway paper in her house in Hampstead. And I think that the way that that reception of this paper so that you, you're you're living in a house with outdated furniture um or outdated design, and the way that that's been read for Loy is that is that the the, the Greenaway paper her biographer suggests kind of symbolises the stultifying gendered implications of uh, Victorian Victorian culture. But so there's this idea that the Mina Loy the Mina Loy lives in this room with this Greenaway paper, and it's totally doesn't suit the sort of girl that she is and the sort of childhood that she's having and the sort of woman that she will become. So I felt interested in that because it also didn't seem to me to actually come from Mina Loy herself, but rather from the interpretation of the space. But the other the other example that I really like is that in the 1920s, Ravel and Colette collaborate on an opera, or I think they call it a lyric fantasy, which is about a young boy 
who completely destroys his nursery. And the way that the nursery is furnished again seems to me to signal 19th century ideas about childhood and childhood spaces. So the child tears down this wallpaper that has all these insipid shepherds and shepherdesses on it. And then the shepherds and shepherdesses come to life and sing a, sing a song. There's really beautiful images on the Glindborn website of when they staged this in 2012 and of the wallpaper kind of letting the children and the shepherdesses out and they're all singing and it's really interesting. So I think that there's this, there's these receptions which are once again, I think about the, the meaning of childhood, the sorts of spaces that, that children need and, and about the way that we receive history through space, I suppose, and through design choices. Hannah, I know you're interested not just in wallpaper, but in the actual walls of Victorian nurseries and your references there to the complete destruction of a nursery um, on, on stage uh, is, is perhaps relevant here. I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit more about what we might find on the walls uh, of Victorian nurseries, other that is than wallpaper. I think if we take this perhaps a little unthinking model of stuffy Victorian culture that we all work against as Victorianists, and as uh, scholars of the 19th century, we might be surprised to learn that actually lots of design manuals encourage children to cut out pictures and either paste them on cards, which they could then display in their rooms, or to actually paste them directly on the walls. I think that that model of, of cutting up and of repurposing of what the historian Ellen Gruber-Garvey calls scissorizing is quite a, a different idea that, than what we might have of seen and not heard childhood Victorian period. And so when I was working on my book, what I was interested in was objects that seemed to demand being pasted up and specifically long fold-outs that look like wallpaper freezers and what it might do if we were to sort of speculatively unbind these and think about think about these traditions of pasting pictures up on walls. The problem with this is that there's very little evidence of what was actually up on walls at all because wallpaper is easily removed and changed. And so we have to do a little bit of sort of, yeah, I think it is a, it is speculative work to think about this. But there's an article that I really like by Karen Sanchez-Epler, where she reads the walls of a nursery space that belonged to Emily Dickinson's family, the Evergreens in Amherst. And she finds that there were these pictures that were pasted up on the walls by these children, and that actually the ways that they repurposed their printed materials were super interesting. So for example, some sort of quite cloying didactic moral tale about a, a, you know, a, a little boy that had an incidental image of the dog, the dog's taken out of the pictures, out of the book, pasted up on the wall, completely out of context, as this kind of like fun, playful image. So that the story is sort of just left aside and then the pictures are what gets reused. The other example that I write about a little and what was interested in here was that in Vanity Fair, Rawdon actually pastes lots of pictures up on the walls of the nursery. So we do have a we have a representation of this practice in literature as well, even if we don't have that many material records of it happening. Hannah, that's super interesting. I'm grateful, and I'm sure our listeners will be also, to have both the idealized and the perhaps messier realities of the nursery walls of the Victorian era in our minds with your guidance to help us. So thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you very much. Dr. Hannah Field is a senior lecturer in the School of English at the University of Sussex. You can visit our episode page at craftingcommunities.net to learn more about Hannah's work and to find links to images of both Greenaway's illustrations and the month's wallpaper. Hello, I'm Jessie Cron. I'm speaking today with Dr. Alice Crossley, a senior lecturer in English at the University of Lincoln. Today, Alice and I will be discussing her research on Victorian Valentine's cards in their surprisingly diverse forms, most listeners might think of simplistic paper cards that are purchasable in bulk, and maybe they have a familiar character on them. The Victorian Valentines that we're discussing today are more intricate than some people might expect. Could you tell us about some notable cards that you've come across? Yes, absolutely. Um, with the Valentines that I've been looking at from the 19th century, a lot of them do use, like you've suggested, those stock figures, tropes, images that we're still familiar with today. I think that the ones that are most interesting are those that have multiple components or movable parts. 
These include very popular types like a cage valentine or a cobweb valentine, which would look like it's on a flat surface, but it has on it a little piece of thread. And when you pull the thread up, it creates a cage out of paper with an image underneath. And that might often be, for some reason, a mouse. Other types will have movable parts. So an aspect um, can be shifted from one side to the other, or a flap is lifted to reveal something else. Some other nice examples include rebus valentines. So rebus is the idea that an image replaces a word. So a heart for love or an eye, an ocular eye for I myself. Another really fun kind of valentine was called bachelor's buttons. This is a, a type of valentine that would have attached to it a needle and some thread. It would have an inscription that would read something like, hello, Mr. Bachelor. Here's a needle and some thread and some shirt buttons wouldn't you like someone to sew them on for you? So this is a kind of flirtatious valentine from, from women to men, kind of suggesting, you know, wouldn't you like a, a wife to keep you in domestic order? There are also um, some incredibly ornate examples of valentine. A lot of valentines would be quite simple, initially in um, simple black and white lithography with hand application of colour. But then as the century goes on, they, they do start to become a lot more ornate. They include lace paper and embossed paper. And lots of other kinds of embellishment as well. For example, ribbon and pearls and different kinds of fabric, um, like scraps of velvet or, or of netting. So these can actually be built up and built up to become really quite impressive and, and weighty objects. So there are this kind of more sentimental type. And then also others that develop this kind of idea of, of playfulness in their expression, like with the rebus and, and bachelor's buttons as well. You've moved us into the multiple uses of Valentine's cards. You've mentioned that there are some that are sentimental, playful. Could you expand on that? Are there other uses that you've noticed? You're right that... Valentines tend to be associated with love and affection, and they often form a part of courtship ritual. They're most often associated with wooing, with courtship, with flirtation. Courtship valentines could be used as a way of sounding someone out in terms of a relationship, some kind of romantic attachment, possibly even marriage, although they could be playful. And so an offer of marriage wouldn't necessarily be taken seriously through a valentine. But there are other ways in which valentines were used as well. Quite surprising to us today, valentines could also be used to point out someone's flaws as a kind of means of communication, to draw attention to someone's bad character or bad behaviour, to make fun of someone else and to kind of really take them down a peg or two, which I think is, is quite shocking. It's not how we think of now as, as the, the, the significance of the Valentine. But they're developed from really the 1840s onwards, a very brisk trade in vulgar or comic valentines. These were usually quite cheap, um, single-sided pieces of paper with quite a, a crude image and a, a sort of short doggerel verse. And what they would tend to do is point out using someone's trade or profession or someone's social status or someone's gender, they kind of draw attention to these aspects and find ways of poking fun. Essentially, they'd say things like, you're really ugly and unattractive. No one would ever want to marry you. And I don't like you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they're amazing. So this is kind of like the alternative type of Valentine, what came to be known um, later in America as the vinegar Valentine. Uh, some of the examples that I've seen of this type include calling men out on extramarital affairs. So I've seen one example which has the words left luggage 
laid at your door. There's a basket and the basket lifts up and inside is a baby. Um, So this idea that, you know, this man has presumably got this poor woman woman pregnant and abandoned her. So I think, you know, something like that is actually, you know, quite risque, quite unusual. So they could certainly put to other uses, other purposes beyond that remit of love and affection. It sounds like Valentine's cards could induce a lot of stress for people depending on the message that was in them. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, they really could. And um, one of the the difficulties was that um, initially, at least, people would send these Valentines without postage. The recipient would have to pay in order to receive this really painful insult. Yeah, I think that's quite harsh. (laughs) You've also been working with an archive of cards that includes the creation of a remarkable Valentine's creator and seller, Jonathan King, who had a store on Euston Road in London, King created a card for his own sweetheart that's structured like a 3D boxed Valentine's card. And from what I understand, it's a very interactive piece. Could you tell us about this card and its dimensionality? Yes, this card is part of the Jonathan King collection, uh, which is located in the Museum of London. And this collection holds over 1,500 Valentines that formed part of King's own collection. So he was a stationer, but he also collected Valentines. They were a personal interest as well as uh, for commercial profit for him. This particular Valentine I think you're exactly right. It is kind of the ultimate specimen of its kind. In making it, what King does is he seems to have drawn from his own stock. Um, So he's using, I think, a lot of the scraps of paper, the mottos, the the small kind of icons, the paper kind of dies that he used in compiling his own much smaller, more modest cards into this fabulous creation. This was a card that King had made or made himself in 1860, and it was given to his sweetheart, Emily Ashford, and it's in a glass box. It's the size of, I suppose, a a kind of deep photo album. It's about two to three inches thick, and it has multiple layers. And on these layers are, you know, lace paper, embellishment, shells, pearls, ribbons, gauze, images. It's a riot of colour and ornamentation. It's it's quite gaudy in its own way. And one of the layers inside is this yellow paper representation of a lady's dressing table. Each of the drawers is a kind of flap that has a feminine virtue on it. One of these flaps lifts up to reveal this little envelope inside with a gold gilt ring. And it seems that this Valentine was actually Jonathan King's proposal to Emily. They were married a year later in 1861, and they actually called one of their children Valentine as a middle name, which I think is a a rather nice acknowledgement of their own business, which was a fancy Valentine shop. Yeah. And she also became very involved in the business as well. Um, One of the advertisements is actually listed um, under her name rather than his name. Um, So it does seem that they're both very involved in in the, the stationers. As resplendent as these cards are, they also invite touch. People's experiences with these cards seem to depend on touch, actually. What do you think about that aspect to these designs? A lot of these more ornate valentines really merit that kind of touch engagement. They are very tactile objects and particularly those that are quite fun and playful demand a kind of engagement. For example, just through the lifting of a flap, the moving or the pulling of a a sort of a a paper lever, lifting a piece of string, opening up to see an inscription inside So I think something is lost by only seeing them in their kind of flat virtual form. Many of them are very built up. So there are a couple of great examples in the Museum of London that have nests made out of twigs with bird carcasses on them. So these stuffed birds. I think one is a blackbird, one is a canary. That really adds another element to the three-dimensional quality um, of these kinds of objects and the way in which they're meant to be seen and displayed. 
I haven't seen this version myself, but came across it in an article on Valentine's from the period. Um, so it's a, a Victorian article about different types of Valentine towards the end of the 19th century. And one of the in items that it, it reproduces in facsimile is a Braille Valentine, which obviously draws attention to the relationship between these as visual objects and Valentine's as tactile objects. So I think that's it's a really nice example in a very particular way of, yes, these as, as tactile objects meant for that kind of engagement. Have you come across any that have had human hair on them? Yes, there's a wonderful Valentine at York Castle Museum towards the end of the century. And it's, it's a Valentine for a new woman. And it reads something like a Valentine for a new woman. Wouldn't you like a man to go with it? And the, it, the kind of centerpiece is this really quite uncomfortable <laughs> application of hair <laughs> designed to look like a moustache. Um, it, it's, it's very strange and quite disturbing. Yeah, that's a, that I think is a very odd one. There are other examples of hair being used in a much more ornate way. Uh, where it might be plaited or something like that. But yes, that is one of the more playful examples where I've seen human hair. <laughs> the other thing about it is every time I, sh I show this in a, a talk or anything like that, everyone's curious to know to what extent is this actually referencing a moustache? Is there something also slightly pubic about it? This kind of this odd application of curly, presumably facial hair, but who knows? Thanks so much for speaking with me today, Alice. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hello, listeners. My name is Anne Hung, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Paisley Mann. Hello, I'm Paisley Mann. I teach at Langara College, and I've been working on Parisian visual culture. One of the objects I've been studying is the Paris kiosks and Oscar Wilde's interest in them. Many of our listeners will be familiar with the life and work of Oscar Wilde. They'll know him as an art critic and a playwright, and also as the author of poems, short stories, and his novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. They'll also know him as a person who was persecuted for his sexuality. Could you tell us about Wilde's relationship with Paris? Sure. Um, so throughout his lifetime, Oscar Wilde was a frequent visitor to and a resident of Paris. He first traveled with his mother for the city's 1867 World's Fair, and he spent three months in Paris in 1883. Then he returned the following year with his wife, Constance Wilde, on their honeymoon, and they stayed on the Rue de Rivoli near the Jardin de Tuileries. He visited again in 1891 and 1892, and he wanted to connect with French literary and artistic figures. He met writers like Victor Hugo, Marcel Proust, Paul Verlaine, uh, Emile Zola. He met painters such as Edgar Degas and Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec and the actress Sarah Bernhard. Uh, he attended the soirees that Stéphane Mallarmé hosted on Tuesday evenings as well. So he was quite connected with the Parisian literary and um, artistic sphere. After his release from prison in 1897, he spent much of the last years of his life in Paris, living in progressively shabbier hotels until his death in 1900 in Saint-Germain-des-Prés Hotel de l'Alsace. One notable aspect of Parisian street culture is the newspaper kiosk. What was the purpose of these kiosks and what did they look like? The kiosks are small stands that are located along the main thoroughfares in Paris, from which vendors would sell newspapers. The original ones were designed by the architect Gabriel David, and they first appeared in 1857. David's kiosks were small structures made of iron and painted a dark green, and each kiosk had a dome and a spire. The creation of these kiosks was part of the large-scale modernization of Paris that was overseen by Baron Haussmann between 1853 and 1870, during Napoleon III's reign. Haussmann radically redesigned the city streets, apartments, sewers, and green spaces, and these kiosks became a recognizable feature of the Haussmannized city, and they matched the aesthetics of Paris's other street architecture. So if you look at images of Haussmann-era benches or lampposts, water fountains, and Morris columns, which look very similar with the dome and spire to the kiosks, and they displayed advertisements, um, you'll see a similar aesthetic. 
I'll point out though that we don't have any of these original kiosks still in use, but their mid to late 20th century replacements do replicate some elements of David's original design. So if you've been to Paris, you probably have an image of these kiosks in mind. Um, there are some new kiosks that have been created and proposed in the last couple of years, and they're supposed to be more comfortable for the newspaper vendors who work inside them, but they depart from the traditional aesthetic. They don't have the iconic dome and the spire, um, and they're made of plastic rather than the iron, and so many people are quite upset about them. <laughs> what do we know about Wilde's fascination with these kiosks, and how do we know it? Wilde wrote a few short poems that are almost impressionistic sketches of life in Paris, um, and in one called Le Jardin de Tuileries, which was published in 1885, he delights in watching the children as they run through the public park. He describes them as like little things of dancing gold, and he positions the painted kiosk alongside other key features of the park, like the bleak tangles of the bosque, huge triton who rides in greenish bronze, and a black leafless tree and he returns to talk about the kiosk in his letters. They become for him what I'm calling a site of fascination and a signifier of France's aesthetic superiority, as well as of his affinity with Parisian rather than British taste. The most significant and extended mention of them is in an 1891 letter that Wilde writes to the editor of The Speaker. So the purpose of the letter has absolutely nothing to do with the kiosks, but Wilde begins with an entire paragraph expounding on the kiosk's aesthetic significance before he's able to cut himself off and clarify, it is not, however, about the kiosks that I wish to write to you. Um, the object of my letter is to correct a statement made in a paragraph of your interesting paper. And he goes on to talk about something completely different. But in the beginning, he mentions that he bought a copy of the speaker from one of the charming kiosks that decorate Paris, institutions, by the way, that I think we should introduce at once into London. And he continues to tell the editor that the kiosk is a delightful object, and when illuminated at night from within, as lovely as a fantastic Chinese lantern, especially when the transparent advertisements are from the clever pencil of Monsieur Charret. This enthusiastic celebration of Parisian urban aesthetics soon turns to a critique of Britain, and Wilde stresses that the establishment of kiosks in London is a thing that the county council should at once take into hand. And so I think that the kiosks become for Wilde a marker of the different value that Britain and France place on public space and aesthetics. And how would you say that Wilde's letters about Paris and Parisian culture illuminate our understanding of the author himself? Yeah, this self-styling um, as an expert on both nations' newspaper sellers, I think, connects to this common thread throughout Wilde's letters. And that's a desire to differentiate himself from British culture through asserting a unique knowledge of Parisian urban space. Um, he has this letter from 1898 to Frank Harris, and he jokes that in Paris's summer heat, giving wrong directions to English tourists is the only thing that consoles me. Um, so he sees himself as, you know, more connected to the Parisian uh, urban landscape than these these British people who sort of don't have the right to be there in his mind. I think that we see throughout Wilde's letters this wrestling with his relationship to British culture and an affinity with Parisian artistic culture. In various letters, he wrote with fondness about the artistic opportunities that France afforded him. He said at one point that the French were charming to me all the time and produced my play Salome and wrote about me as a living artist, but the English denied me even the barren recognition that one gives to the dead. And again, he talks about France as giving him a lovely asylum, and he terms her the modern mother of all artists who has many willful sons whom she always consoles and sometimes heals. And then this connection to Paris, of course, increases after his 1897 release from prison when he leaves England never to return. And he told Alfred Douglas in a letter, all I want is to have my artistic reappearance and my own rehabilitation through art in Paris, not in London. It is an homage and a debt that I owe to that great city of art. So I think that even though he's making these kind of humorous asides about his knowledge of British culture and his preference for Parisian street culture and Parisian kiosks, I think there's 
underneath it, this sort of wrestling between which identity he wants to connect most with, and that ends up being the kind of Parisian sensibilities rather than the British artistic sphere that he finds himself rejected from. On behalf of the entire team at Crafting Communities, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And for listeners, if you're interested in viewing an image of these kiosks, you can check out the Victorian Samplings webpage. Thank you to guests Deborah Wynn, Hannah Field, Alice Crosley, and Paisley Mann for their contributions to this episode. Before I thank the student team members who co-create Victorian samplings, I'll share a reminder to check out the suggested readings and resources on our episode page, and also to visit Victorian Things, a virtual exhibit that includes, among other offerings, the wallpaper Hannah discussed and the tiny book Deborah shared. And now, thank you to student team members Jesse Cron and Anne Hung for their wonderful work creating segments for this episode. Thank you also to Natalie Lovetri for her careful transcription of this episode, and to Madison George Burlett for all of her digital media work. Anne and Madison contributed to this podcast from Victoria, British Columbia, the territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, traditional land of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples. Jesse, Natalie, and I worked on this episode in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. We welcome your feedback. Please email us at crafting at uvic.ca and consider following us on Twitter at craftyvictorian. To learn more about the topics explored in this episode, please visit the Crafting Communities website. Crafting Communities is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrea Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thank you, as always, for listening to Victorian Samplings. <laughs>